and welcome back to another episode of Free the Geek FM. In this episode, I have a long-awaited fireside chat with the cult leader of testing himself, Mr. Chris Hartjes, the grumpy programmer. G'day, 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 g'day. That sounded a bit corny, a bit Aussie, but hey, that's me, that's who I am. Anyway, welcome back to episode 16. Can you believe it? 16 episodes of Free the Geek FM. Hey, when I was first starting out, I wasn't sure I'd get this far, but now that I have, onwards and upwards. Anyway, yes, it's episode 16 of Free the Geek FM, and in this episode, as I said just before the intro music, it is the one and only grumpy programmer who I have the pleasure of having a fireside chat with today. This is, in some ways, this is a culmination for me because I chatted to Chris on and off, I think at least over the last 12 months. Um, he has been uh, a great help. I've been kind of wanting to, to get this happening for some time, but his schedule being the busy thing that it is, it's been hard to, to kind of get uh, a, matching, a matching time, a matching sort of hour and a half to make it happen, but finally it did. And what an episode I think this is going to be. Mainly because he has he has lots of great advice to share in in two key areas, two key areas which I think what would you say? I, th- I think they really underpin development overall, or sort of for us as developers. Firstly, it's on testing. Now I know that I've kind of had a couple of people on for fireside chats recently talking about testing, but you have to have the cult leader on himself. You know, the, the one who's out there, who's been kind of bashing people's heads in saying, come on, where are your tests? If you don't have tests, I will burn you, etc., etc., etc. That isn't to devalue anybody else who I've had on, by the way. So I thought it was, it was really important to, to get him in, to get his feelings, to kind of get his take, his opinions, his ideas and input onto testing itself, the state of the landscape and where it's going in the future. And then secondly... Something that I th- that I think is really important for sort of us as as developers to consider, and and that is how often, how much we we work for other people versus the time we take, the time we invest in something for ourselves. You know, the things we sort of do, maybe just on the side, maybe as something to just get us a little bit of extra cash, say for birthdays. Christmas, special holidays, um, those sorts of things, to maybe something that blooms into something larger that perhaps, and, and some of us may be going that way, becomes our full-time concern. You know, that, that, that that's what we do then for a living. I personally have felt that I benefited quite, quite a lot from listening to him and what he had to share. I am confident, I really am, and I genuinely mean that, uh, believe that you will as well. So without any further ado... It's over to the fireside chat with Chris, and I will see you afterwards. So you started off what, like, like the rest of us, I guess, like working five days a week for the proverbial man, and then said, yes. I want to go off in my own direction. Sort of how, t- t- talk me through, how did that chain of events sort of come to pass or that mindset kick in? Well, I guess we have to kind of go back a little bit where the first thing to look at is the 
it started off with the decision that I wanted to do things on the side and make a little bit of extra money because a lot of this was just motivated sheerly by, <laughs> excuse me, my desire to have some more money in my pocket, right? Mm-hmm. Programmers are, are, you know, as you know, are pretty well paid, but uh, a little bit of extra money um, can, even just tiny amounts of money can give you uh, a very large amount of freedom, you know, when, mm-hmm. you, when you're able to start, you know, where you make a little bit of extra money, then you can maybe save a little bit of money or you can buy things that you weren't able to buy before or it frees up your money to do other things. So in the beginning, it was motivated by money. It started off by me wanting to make some extra money. Uh, I didn't really want to do consulting on the side because I found over the years my uh, I think the nice word to label it, my temperament is mm-hmm. not really made for consulting for people. I'm I, much better off with, here's a task, go and do it. And when you get it done, let me know. I, I can't um, imagine like, where, where are you getting that from though? <laughs> <laughs> so, so what happened then is that, okay, so I'm going to, for me, it looked like uh, I think I could write um, books about technical topics. Uh, I found that, uh, um, I found speaking at conferences very natural I, I discovered I, you know, I was pretty good at convincing people about my ideas, and that's a big part of being, you know, a good conference speaker. And then creating materials surrounding it is your ability to convince people of the value of your ideas, to tell people why testing is good, to tell other people here's here's a uh, here's my summary on how to use a very popular testing tool, and here's the things that you need to know and why. Mm-hmm. I found those things very very natural. So I sat down and, and started. Okay, let's write a book. And quickly what I discovered was that in order to write the book um, and do all the other things I was doing in my life, being married and have a family and, and hobbies and stuff like that, was like I was slowly taking slices of my life away from work mm. in order to do these things. It was starting to be like, you know, a couple hours, uh, you know, like an hour and a half to two hours um, every single night. So as a result, I didn't get to spend a lot of time with my wife and uh, here and there, a few things with with the kids suffered. Nothing major because I'm still, um, you know, despite what some people might think, I still do put my family up front in terms of my time commitments. So mm-hmm. I was able to balance all these things and and you know be and be reasonably successful at all of them. You know, I got two books done and I was able to continue speaking at conferences and held down the, the day job and kept moving up and doing uh, more and more interesting things at different places. But at some point, I was like. Uh, I need to like shift my time around. And so I started thinking about, well, you know, what would be the best way to do this? And then uh, my uh, friend, Amy Hoy, uh, who's done lots and lots of work around product development, and she runs a very successful um, business with her husband. Um, And so she made the suggestion of, well, one of the easiest ways to do this sort of thing is is try to shift your time around and and set aside time for you to actually work on these things. Mm-hmm. And the idea was if you you only need a couple hours a week really to work on on some of the things. You just kind of set things up so that these side projects that that you're doing they don't require endless amounts of time. You don't have to commit to like I have to work a hundred hours next week just to get this thing to a state where it's usable. You know, she's always a big advocate on planning things and and knowing in advance the work that you're going to do has value for other people and that they're going to be giving you money in exchange for this thing that you're doing right from day one. Hmm. So, uh, and very, very big on planning and, and more importantly, executing on that plan. So her suggestion was, and she did the same thing was like, if you're in a job, if you're working someplace five days a week, as a, the strategy is go interview some places for another job, get that job offer. Um, 
in hand. Like, and make sure it's like, you know, like a raise, like maybe 15 to 20% more than what you're making now, or even more if you're extremely lucky. Mm-hmm. Then you can just go back to your current employer and say, look, you know, I want some more time in my private life. I still want to work here, but here's the deal. I have a job offer to go somewhere else that's going to pay me more. I am willing to stay here if you let me work just four days a week and not with a pay cut or anything, same money, but four days a week. Mm -hmm. And really at that point, for you, the person who has the job offer, it's kind of a win-win, right? Either you're going to get that extra day a week to do whatever it is that you need to do in your private life. And to be perfectly blunt, your employer doesn't really need to know. As long as you're not doing something that contravenes any contracts or agreements you've signed mm-hmm. with them. Or if they don't, if they say, well, no, we can't support that, then you just go off to the new job and you're making more money. So you've accomplished the goal of finding a way to make some more money. So in my case, it was, I, you know, I looked at it and realized if I was going to continue to do work um, at a level of execution that I was comfortable with, that the results were something I was comfortable with, I was going to need that one day a week. That I needed one day a week where I could do all the things I used to do in the evenings Mm -hmm. after hanging out with my kids and hanging out with my wife and then go back down into my home office and start working on these things. I, I, I felt that I could be way less stressed about work if I knew that I didn't have to worry about any of my side projects until Friday. And then on Fridays, I knew I didn't have to give a thought at all to anything I was doing at my day job, that I could just concentrate on doing the things that I wanted to do related to my side business on Fridays. And that's exactly what has happened. I've been doing this a year and a half now, I mm-hmm. believe, of you know, the four days a week, and then Fridays are for me. And I feel like a million times less stressed about the day job and feel much, much better about the things that I'm doing on the side because I'm able to actually compartmentalize it and say, I don't have to worry about my side stuff till Friday. And then on Fridays, I'm like, I don't have to worry about my day job until Monday. And I just make that demarcation point very, very clear. And that's, it has worked out really, really well for me. That was the, that was the question I was going to ask because I've always had like a head full of ideas. Like there's always been something and keeping the two separate. I've always found a real challenge, not to say I haven't been able to do it, but it's sort of challenged to go, well, I could do this. And, you know, like I, I found that it can be easy for one to plead into the other one. Absolutely. Um, um, I mean, for, for me, the big thing was going through Amy's product development course. She, she and her uh, business partner, Alex, run this thing called 30 by 500 that initially start off with the idea of when you looked at the math, it's like if you could create a business mm-hmm. where you have 500 people paying you $30 a month, that's $180,000 a year in revenue coming in. So uh, so what she does with her course is teaches people how to do product research, product development, uh, really good marketing messages, teaches you how to do all that with the idea being that your time is the one resource you can never get back. And it's especially more important for Amy because Amy has uh, a chronic illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it's called uh, dysatomia. It it uh, manifests itself in a whole bunch of like really weird health problems, um, rapid blood pressure spikes, uh, really weird flexibility on uh, joints, and just uh, you know easily dehydrated, just all sorts of like really weird and ultimately debilitating conditions that could cause her to like not be able to get out of bed for a couple of days. So when you have that sort of 
you know, that those sort of constraints and they're terrible ones being applied to your life, you learn to, uh, you have to learn ways to, you know, be very focused about the work that you're doing to get them, you know, so that you know for sure before you work on something that you're intending on selling that people are already um, going to give you money for it. Because when you have a very limited amount of time, you don't want to waste it on ideas that are not going to give you. I mean, I, I, I know it sounds very money centric, but it is. You're trading your time for money mm-hmm. and you want to make sure before you've even done anything beyond the idea itself that you're going to be getting paid for it. And this is the problem I see a lot of my friends have where they have the ideas, they fall in love with the idea, but they have no clue whether anybody wants this thing or whether anyone is going to actually pay them money for this thing. Or I see people literally giving away things that could make them a non-trivial amount of money. And so that's kind of my mindset. I don't, I don't commit any time to one of these info products, if you want to give it a label, unless I'm 100% sure that uh, it's going to make me money. Because otherwise, I'm just wasting my time. There's so many other things I could do with my time. I could just sit in my office and listen to my record collection all day on a Friday if I just want to do something and not get any, and not get any monetary benefit. But if I'm actually going to you know, put a bunch of effort into something that I want to give to other people, I to be totally mercenary, I want to get paid for that. I still do lots of things for free for people, but when it comes to my when it comes to things that I put under the Grumpy Learning brand, mm. uh, it's all very uh, coldly calculated and all very much designed to to make a return on investment. I mean, for example, my latest book, it isn't even finished yet. Yeah. It's not even officially launched. I haven't even really started the marketing campaign for it. I've already made twelve hundred dollars that will be going into my pocket from it, and it's sure. not even done. And it's sure, not like even done. Which are the testing, yeah. the, the grumpy testing God. Yes. Well, I mean, but, you know, it took me a lot of work to build that brand up. It's, uh, it's the joke of the overnight success that took 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. that type of thing where um, people tend to see the finished product and they don't understand everything that went into making that thing. Very true. Sorry, just coughing up a lung here. <laughs> um, so, Okay, so it was 10 years, and you mentioned, what, like a year and a half, a number of that, a year and a half, a little while back. Um, so what was it like in the early days, like when you were sort of getting started and, you know, everything was new and you're like, well, you're not sure what you have to do and what's worth doing and what's not worth doing? Or did you meet sort of Amy and Alex right back at that point? Well, I had known, okay, I didn't know, I didn't meet Amy until probably, I want to say... 2005, 2006, that time frame. So like about 10 years ago, she happened to be speaking um, uh, at a conference that I went to in Toronto and I had gotten to be friendly with her on, um, on Twitter and a little bit on IRC. And this is before she did all these things. Mm. But in my case, it was kind of like there was – there's like multiple progressions. I mean I, I spent the first – I mean I've been – so this is like my 18th year as a – professional programmer, if you, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. So the first half of my career was like working um, at various places for various people, right? And then there came the, the time period where I was sick of the, the commute because mm-hmm. um, I used to have to go into downtown Toronto. And it was usually 
Um, at this point, we had moved out to where I am now, which is like in a third ring or almost fourth ring suburb of Toronto. So pretty far out, last stop on the commuter rail system. So it used to take me 90 minutes to get to work mm-hmm. and uh, two hours to get back. So, you know, I was losing, you know, three to three and a half hours um, every single day, just mm-hmm. commuting. And that was grinding me down. And so I became determined. And plus, uh, my youngest uh, was about to be born. And I was like, I'm going to miss out on being around for my kid. So I'm like, okay, I want to shift to working from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll take pay cuts and I'll take a variety of, you know, maybe less than satisfactory jobs at the beginning because it'll put me on the path that I want where I will continue to work from home. So once I got that squared away, then the next thing started being, okay, now, now that I have the remote jobs and I've proven I can handle working remotely without needing constant supervision because, you know, some people – some people do, and some people need to be in an office because they they need the collaboration. They need the constant contact. I'm okay to sit in my office with my cat. That's about all the contact I need during the week. Um, and then it's like, okay, now I want to make more money. And then uh, the first book that I did, which is the the Grumpy Programmer's Guide to Building Testable Applications in PHP. I can't even remember the name. That's because I don't worry about the name too much. But the first one that I did, hmm. uh, that one I did all on my own. It was half blog posts and half other material that I wrote. I released that book. It did pretty good. Um, it did better than I thought it was going to do, which is always good. But I felt like it could have been better, right? Mm. It could have made more money. I could have marketed it better. It was one of these things where, you know how sometimes when you're like, I know I'm doing something like at 85% yeah. and I don't know how to, and I don't know how to get it from 85% to like a hundred percent. Yeah, very and much. That, and that's when I circled back and started paying attention to what Amy had been doing. Cause I've been following her online and watching her success with this course. And that's when I decided, I think that Amy's course could help me get closer to uh, the ability to have the 100% execution mm-hmm. that I wanted. And, and uh, Amy's course is not cheap. It's changed over time, uh, the format of it and the price for it as well. Um, but in terms of like my success, after having taken that course, I made back the money that I paid Amy for that course. I made it back on the first day that the book that I researched and wrote using what Amy taught me, I made it back in the first day. Mm-hmm. So. In, in terms of that, it was a complete 100% success. So okay. the, the creating products thing, it, it came about halfway. I'd say I've been probably concentrating the last four or five years on building that up with a, with a book roughly uh, kind of every other year almost, I would say. Because I guess I'm on book number three, and this is kind of year number five of the Grumpy Learning Project for lack of a, of a better label. So uh, Pretty decent label. I'd yeah. That. Yeah. Well, you sort of can't mistake who you're, you know, who you're talking about when you're using that yeah. label, that oh. moniker. Oh, the branding has been a, a, a complete success. I don't even remember where I, where I came up with the idea. It's probably something my wife was probably complaining. I was grumpy about something all the time. Um, so I thought, why not kind of create, create a, a, like a unique and standout brand mm. um, to put all these things under? Because I, I felt that you know, those marketing messages needed some kind of unifying thing. And I'm putting mm-hmm. them under that brand and then acting like the grumpy programmer on Twitter. Um, yeah. Even though I've dialed it way, way back from what it used to be. But um, because I don't need to be so aggressive anymore with the marketing. <laughs> yeah, uh, getting old. The, 
I'm not getting old. I can be just as mad and angry on, on Twitter <laughs> as I used to be. It just mm-hmm. I don't I just don't need to work at it quite as hard um, as I used to. Uh, okay. uh, so you know that's the, yeah the branding has been a complete one hundred percent success. I mean I have people who in person even just call me grumpy. Right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 worked. It's a hundred percent worked. Awesome. So um, and now I kind of shot off and, and lost my train of thought. Um, so would you? Actually, I want to, I want to like segue for a second into sure. the remote working because it's something I do and I really like it because uh, my wife and I have a little girl who's two and a half and it's been great. Like I feel that I don't, I, I feel in my head that I actually don't see her loads, but in comparison, at least like when I was a kid, I see her an awful lot in comparison to how much I saw my dad. Um, so it's been great for that. Um, but do you ever sort of feel like, you know, you sort of, you miss a certain amount of contact or if you sort of feel like, how do you sort of get around that? Like, you know, to have, keep a sense of sort of social connection with, or do you just not give a stuff really? Well, I mean, like I do enjoy meeting my coworkers from time to time. It's not like I want to be a complete hermit and just like camp out here at home and never go anywhere. Yeah. So uh, part of that key too, is to build up a good network of people that you talk to online. Um, Twitter is good for that. IRC is really good for that. Um, speaking at conferences is really good for that. So uh, I do stay in touch with a lot of people and also to kind of compensate for the fact that I'm not around a lot of people during my work day. Mm-hmm. Um, I seek out hobbies where I do have to interact with a large number of people. I played uh, slow pitch baseball here in town um, for several years until uh, the vision in one of my eyes got bad enough that I couldn't see the ball properly anymore. And I stopped playing. But also, uh, as people know, I play Magic the Gathering, and that's mm-hmm. a card game where you do have to interact with a lot of people in person. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, every Friday, even tonight, I know we're recording this on a Friday, but tonight I'm going to go play Magic. I play it every week on, on a Friday when I'm around. So I did seek out activities where I did have to interact with people. I'm, you know, I'm actually a pretty sociable person. I just chose for uh, a variety of reasons related to like quality of life and my desire to uh, not work in open plan offices and things like that, just to work from home. I, you know, uh, as I used to tell people all the time, if I was really, if I, if I was in real life, the way I sometimes joke around on Twitter, mm. um, I'd probably be unemployable and I would just be a lonely individual cranking out stuff and wondering why nobody likes me. <laughs> Yeah, there's always that sort of line of like, how far can I or can't I go or should I, shouldn't I not go in yes, like in person, definitely. but online it's totally different. Yeah, it's very easy to be, to act very, very different online than you are in person. Um, these days, I think I do a much better job of synchronizing the real me with the online me where, you know, I, I try to really act in person um, the same way I am on Twitter and I try to be on Twitter the same way I really am. There's not, uh, I would say the persona has been toned way, way down um, in the past couple of years, just because I found a lot of it just, it was fun at the beginning to like be completely over the top all Mm. the time, but it, but it got boring. And I felt that in many cases it actually got to be um, uh, counterproductive with the messages that I was trying to, uh, get across to people about, you know, about communicating to them the things that I feel are important and that I could help them with. So, you know, over time, the goals change. The overall messages are kind of the same, mm. but I just had, I, I shifted from being very aggressive about wanting people to 
you know, adopt programming practices and tools surrounding testing to at the point now where I prefer to concentrate on helping the people that really want, that are ready to be helped. So mm-hmm. I've kind of moved out of the um, evangelism role, I think is probably a good way to put it, into a more, oh, you want to know more? I'm happy to help. So you, what you and, feel, sorry, yeah? No, no, I'm not, no, go ahead. So you feel that's more, what, like more, more effective or it's just a, I, a, I believe- a time in, in the career that it just, it's gone that way? Oh, I, th- I think it's a little bit of both, right? I mean, uh, it's like within the community, my first task I felt was to like really raise the awareness of why writing tests for your uh, code is good. Mm. Uh, and I was by far the loudest and most vocal person about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so in many ways, just like my decision to move on from doing uh, True North, uh, the conference, mm-hmm. I feel like I've accomplished that goal. Um, you know, I have very high personal recognition when th- people think about testing, they think about, about me, they think about Sebastian Bergman, mm-hmm. and they think about a couple other people, I'm sure. But, um, you know, other people have commented in conferences that they feel like without me yelling about all this stuff many years ago, um, the situation in regarding to testing tools in PHP, would, it, it wouldn't be what it is right now. Yeah. So where, where you know, we're at a point, we're at a point where it's, Whereas it used to be you could kind of proclaim ignorance uh, about testing tools and mm. techniques for PHP code. Now we're at a position where the stuff has been around long enough. Most of the tools that people can use are mature and not changing. Mm-hmm. There is no, it is now, whereas opposed it could be like you just didn't know how to do these things or that these things were available to you. We're past the ignorance as an excuse stage. It's like now when you choose not to do these things, you are literally choosing because there is no shortage of either books by me or other people, online resources, um, conference sessions, workshops available to people. There's no longer you, – you're, you're choosing to dodge all those things mm. when you choose not to, not to test and do stuff like that. That's all. So that's why with that realization that we kind of – I've reached a level where uh, aggressive evangelism will have diminishing returns. Oh, like yeah, I don't okay. need to get 100%. I only need to get to 85 or 90 in terms of like people understanding, oh, I can test my code. Oh, I'm kind of interested. How can I do this? Now I have to shift to helping the people who want the help. Because you'll always have a set of people who believe the, the testing is useless and, and not worth the time. And uh, their own situation is so super unique that testing can't possibly benefit them. And, you know, that's those are opinions, not necessarily facts. But you you can respect someone's opinion and their commitment to it. But I look at it in terms of now I need to shift to helping the people that want to get better, better. Cause now at this point, I find that way more fulfilling than constantly sending jokey tweets with pictures of me pointing fingers at people saying you test, don't you? I mean, it's like, that's funny for a while, but at some point it's like, no, I need to shift to uh, delivering a different message. There'd be like a law of diminishing returns on it. They wouldn't, it? it's like, absolutely. So like at first it has an impact because it's novel. And then after a while you'd sort of what, just tune it out because you're just used to seeing it. It's like, oh, there's Chris again telling us we should be testing our stuff. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. And you're right. They tune it out. So that's why got to keep those messages relevant and, mm. and, um, and, and be available to, to teach the people that want to learn more. Because for me personally, um, that's way more fulfilling. When someone comes to you and says, I understand you're good at X. I, w- I want some help with X. And, mm-hmm. and for me, that's a, a very fulfilling thing that I get to do now. Okay. Um, segwaying around again, what, why, why 
testing, like what kind of kicked that off as opposed to, I don't know, continuous integration or software architecture or, you know, like another aspect of it? Sure. Well, that's actually, it's a very, I've spoken about this before, but it's, it's actually very interesting because what happened was that very early in my career, I was involved um, in a very large PHP project that the launch was a complete disaster. Um, and the, the site was buggy and uh, really poorly architected. It was, uh, this is 2002, 2003. Mm-hmm. And this is before the rise of, um, of web application frameworks in PHP that encourage you to separate your, your templates from your business logic. It was just very much spaghetti PHP all slammed together. And so the launch was terrible. We had uh, one hell of a death march to get it done. Um, you know, I've spoken uh, People who are listening to this who've heard me talk about this before will, you know, recognize the story. Um, you know, I worked 120 hours of overtime in six weeks leading up to Christmas. Um, I was pretty sure my wife was gonna like make me choose between her and my job, and the job wasn't really wasn't really worth keeping. You mm-hmm. know that type of thing. It's like no, that's not that's the job isn't so important that my my you know my relationship to my wife was gonna have to suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it was done, and we had the launch. And it was horrible. There was all these bugs and we had to get to fixing them and uh, a bunch of really contentious arguments about what things needed to be fixed first. Uh, you know, the, the project manager and I were having a discussion at lunchtime and he was like, you know, Chris, here's a book that I think you should read that I think you would probably get a lot, a lot out of. And it was one of um, the early extreme programming books uh, from Kent Beck. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a, like a pinkish reddish cover. I think it's like, Extreme Programming Explained or something. I can't remember what the actual name is. But anyway, I do remember Pinkish Reddish Cover written by Kent Beck about extreme programming. So he said, here, go read this book over the weekend. He was thinking that uh, that I would like the idea of doing the little, uh, you know, the little snippets of iterative work mm. that, uh, you know, that extreme programming advocates. Mm-hmm. But when I was reading it, I came to the section about unit testing. And I read that and I was like, oh my God, you mean there's an actual like actual technique and system that you can use to like verify all your stuff is working that doesn't involve you simply making a change and refreshing the browser and would allow us to find these problems before our users did. Mm -hmm. When I saw that, I was like, this is exactly what we could have used. And so, you know, when I got back the the next day, um, you know, Internally, the team, we start having discussions about, you know, around the, the, the natural theme is how can we make sure this doesn't happen again? And so eventually, it took me almost a year of internal advocacy at the company mm. to get us to start doing unit tests. And that's exactly what we did. We started writing tests for the application. And by the time I left, I spent almost four years working there. Um, by the time uh, I left, they had worked testing into just the regular development flow. You know, nothing was going to, nothing was allowed to be merged into version control. We were using subversion for this project. Nothing could be merged in until it was reviewed and verified that they had a test with it. So in that case, that was a huge success. And I discovered like how much I liked that approach and how effective I found that approach. Mm. And then that to me became the niche where I thought I could get something done and the niche where I thought I could try to make a little bit of money on the side by helping people with it. You know, 
like contribute to open source project. And that would lead, I was aware there were conferences like, oh, cool. I could go to these conferences and people will pay me to go. They'll pay for my flights. I'll be able to talk about things that I find interesting. And then I'll also be able to like start making friends with people who are into the same type of things. And then who knows um, where those sort of opportunities lead. Cause I'm always about be ready for the opportunity. I'm a be ready for the opportunity type of person. You know, that old expression, um, like nobody's lucky or inherent, you know, nobody's inherently lucky and nobody's inherently unlucky, but like weird random things that we describe as luck do happen. Mm. And for me, luck is always, you know, luck is always like the, the intersection between you have an opportunity to do something and you have the skills to do it successfully. So to me, that's, that's not luck. It's like, you're just, you're in the, you're in the right place at the right time and you have the skills to succeed. So I always felt that, getting involved in open source and concentrating on testing was going to be the thing that would give me all sorts of opportunities to do like really interesting things and have a very fulfilling career. And I've been a hundred percent right. Okay. Good. Good. I mean, it's, it's, it's also that uh, I think I sent like an open mind to it as well. Like an open mind to be um, what available to the potential opportunity when it comes up, I guess, and to sort of see it and not sort of um, let it slip on by. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you have to be open to, you should never say never, um, right? I mean, mm. there are some things you can just dismiss out of hand that just aren't going to fit for whatever reason, a variety of like, you know, personal circumstances, personal beliefs, um, skill sets, all those things. But, you know, uh, you, know, I, you know, I don't get I don't get recruiter emails nearly as much as I used to. I think having the magic, um, magic uh, fairy dust of Mozilla applied to me now keeps a lot of people away. I always kind of wish that I had, it's the proverbial wish I knew uh, then what I know now, because I was, um, I, I was this, the, the, the cliched person who would write stuff and then go, but that shouldn't have happened. And why did it happen when I changed that? And it was only oh, in the last kind of odd number of years that perhaps I um, chose to sort of stop being so stubborn and be a bit more open-minded to things. And even though I've been, I, I consider I sort of been doing testing for a good number of years now, it feels that only really recently is it really, really a part of what I do, if that makes any sense. Like before, it was sort of something I did, but it was still being integrated, I guess. But now it's sort of like, it's just, I, I, I couldn't see um, development and, and testing as, as two separate things. I could say, you, I could say, well, you could be a script kitty and write code, but that's not software development in my mind. You know, if you're not testing um, what's being written, then to me, that's not development. That's just kind of hacking around. And it took a while to really, really get that to, to that, well, like muscle memory level, where it's just what you do auto, uh, automatically. Um, oh, yeah, I, I agree with that. It's, it's interesting when uh, people, you know, talk to me about stuff like, well, they're having, you know, maybe they work for an agency or they're a consultant and they're like, or, you know, freelancer or whatever. And they're saying things like, well, you know, how do I, how do I convince the, the boss, the client, the manager, whatever, uh, to let me write tests. And I just say, it's just, it's, that's the wrong question, right? Mm. It's the testing becomes something that you're just doing as part of the, process you know when people say well you know my boss says you know we're not paying you to write tests like well yeah you're paying me to deliver um a final product and the tests and stuff are just part of that they're just it's the idea you need to the idea of separating the the testing from the code is is the thing that leads to people having very weird opinions 
about the the value of testing. It's like it's just something you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think a lot of people would be surprised to to learn if that another person watching them do their work would notice that you're doing tests for your stuff. You're just doing them in a very ad hoc way and you're throwing them away when you're done. Whereas the whole belief on doing test-driven development or including tests as part of the development process that all you're doing is you're you're formalizing the writing of these tests and you're keeping them around mm. afterwards so you can use them again. So rather than throw them out, you're you're keeping them. And I think that's uh, I can't think of a these days of a of a better way to kind of explain that to people. Okay, I don't know if it was you who said it or someone else, but someone said it was it was that question you had before. You know, how can I convince the boss or the client or person X to let me write tests? And I think. Whoever it was who said it said, but do you, does a doctor, when you go to a doctor because you, you've got a flu or something or other, you know, do they ask you, can I treat you in this way? You're like, well, no, because they're the doctor. You've gone to them for help. They do what they need to do to help you out. And I'd never, uh, you know, there's things that you just, maybe you never thought of it in, in such a specific way. But to me, it made a lot of sense. It's like, well, then why would you ask the boss if you can do tests? Because it's just it's it's part of what you do. It's not separate. Yeah, that's the like like I said before. Like that's the the danger zone people get into is the idea of thing that the tests are separate from the work that you're doing. It's like it's all the same thing. It's the tests and all that stuff is all just part of my work to deliver. Uh, you know, deliver this whatever it is you've asked me to do. This this application, this module, this library, this bug fix, whatever it is. Me writing tests to verify that things are working the way that I expect is just—it's just part of it. I mean, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I try to do test-driven development as much as possible in my own projects. Mm. Sometimes it's not so easy because of previous decisions that I've made, and, and in some cases, um, the change is, is the change that I need to make uh, doesn't justify the amount of work to to refactor the application to support making it testable. I mean, uh, my longest running PHP application is like 12 or 13 years old at this point, still being used all the time. Um, and it has zero tests for it. Um, and not and not because I didn't know about testing at the time. Mm. It was more like I needed to get this thing done. And it wasn't like, and it wasn't a case of someone's um, paying me for it. It's like, I needed to do this. I had limited amounts of time. So I sucked it up and said, I understand the problem I'm trying to solve um, enough that I don't need unit tests or integration tests to tell me that things aren't working. I have a series of end-to-end tests that are clearly defined that I can run through to make sure the application continues to work the, the way that it does. The key thing here I think people need to remember is you need a repeatable, provable way that your application is working as expected. If you don't have one of those, then you're just accepting on faith that everything is working. And um, as I like to say to some people, faith doesn't pay the bills, right? Yeah. Results pay the bills. Yeah. You have to make sure that the thing that you're doing is working in the way that you expect it to work every single time. Yeah, exactly. So, um, there's a That leads me to another point. I was having a chat on, on the show with um, a good mate of mine, uh, Tom Oram, who goes by Tom PHP on Twitter, um, who has been an amazing, I, I think in addition to yourself, between the two of you has been my other um, testing mentor, all things DD. And I, I said to him something about, 
um, my understanding of, of TDD and XDD and stuff. And as always, I'm stuck for exactly what it was. But he said that he saw like TDD and stuff as a, as a design process, not as a, oh, if only I could get his wording right. But there's a point about it, he said he saw it more as, as a design process as opposed to do my tests cover my work. It was that by doing TDD, you thought in a, in a better way. It, it guided your development in a, in a perhaps better Definitely. way. Definitely. No, you I know exactly what, I, yeah, no, I exactly, I, I agree with, uh, with your friend Tom there. It's, it's definitely, uh, TDD is, is a design tool because you're designing, you're, you're writing code based on your tests for those, for the listeners who, who aren't familiar with TDD. It's the idea that, um, you start off by writing a test and you design everything in that test. You design your names for things, what methods you want to use, uh, your interfaces to things. You design all those things in the test for a for a specific scenario, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I so you're you're guided by the test. So you write a test assuming everything already works. And then you run the test and everything should predictably fail and blow up because what you're trying to do, you haven't done yet. And then mm-hmm. you slowly fill in all the gaps. You actually write the code, you uh, create the methods, you create your interfaces, you return values, you do your tests, which most of the time are assertions that when I call this method with these parameters, I get back this result. So, um, and then you just keep going until, until the test passes. And then you go back and look at it and say, did I accomplish this the best way possible? You go back and refactor and change things and tighten things up a little bit. And all the, all the while making sure your tests pass. And then you go on to the next thing that you need to do. So TDD is very much a design process. You're, you're designing things at a very, very low level. And the big idea is that by designing things in a very cohesive way at a low level, Mm. when you integrate everything together, um, things will work the way that you've been expecting because you've been building everything with a, uh, with a, a level of expectation that you understand how things are supposed to work and code written in the TDD style looks very, very different than, than other legacy code because it has to get written in a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. You have, you have to be able to set your dependencies. You have to be able to um, peer inside and, and, and look at results and look at conditions and all these things that, you know, you may be, may have manually been doing in the browser, but now you're just shifting all that attention to a lower level where you're making sure in this instance, with this set of inputs, I'm getting this, these outputs in return. And the thought is you end up with code. That's very small, single purpose, um, you know, it's almost uh, I, the nice analogy is that you end up kind of building applications like they're Lego blocks. You're snapping all these blocks together to build something really, really interesting. Uh, I remember seeing a quote years and years ago that said, um, uh, simple systems can um, display complex behavior, but complex systems can only display simple behavior. So the idea is that by focusing on a simple level, go down as low as you can, set all your expectations, think about what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Don't think too far ahead. Um, and just, you will literally end up with an application that you snap together by putting blocks. It, yeah. it'll, feel, it'll feel like building something out of Lego. Yeah, it, I, th- I think that's a, that's a really awesome analogy because the, the more and more I do it, well, firstly, I don't write as much because I, you know, I don't write stuff going, well, I think I'll need that later. It's like, well, I, I don't need it now. And that means I'd have to write a test for it only to have something that I don't use. So I won't. And then always, as you said, sort of saying, okay, well, how, 
okay, I want to do this, but how could I test that? No, can't do it like that. I'll have to do... And like, yeah, and it just could, could continues to guide you, assuming that it gets done, that it sort of guides you and in, I'd like to think, a better direction. Um, but yeah, I always, I, I find I write less and less, but what I have, um, well, I guess conversely, is then there for a reason. So you look and say, well, that must be used somewhere, otherwise it shouldn't be there anymore, or it should never have been there in the first place. So it's, I don't know, I like it. I find it freeing, actually. I find it really, um, well, besides, I think it, I was listening to uh, this discussion with Kent Beck and Martin Fowler and David Henry Hansen, and I kind of feel myself like more and more agreeing with Kent Beck. I feel, in part, it helps me write less but achieve the same thing. And then secondly, that sense of reassurance that if something quirky goes wrong, well, one, it shouldn't. Or two, if I start doing something, the test should uncover that before it becomes bang and it's just exploded on me. So yeah, no, I, that's that's kind of how I feel as well. It's it's you 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 start focusing at the application at a different level. You're more worried about individual details, and you're not worrying about the big picture as much. Because you're right, the the idea is that if you have the tests combined with a very defensive programming style, where you're you know doing a lot of filtering and and trying to capture weird exceptions before they occur, mm-hmm. that you should end up with an application that's not that brittle. And you're right. It's only the weird things that you have to worry about. I, I you know I tell people that's one of the, you know, with the end game being um, continuous deployment, right? The idea mm-hmm. that you have, uh, you have a good enough system in place that a developer writes some code, it gets reviewed, everything's okay. Then they literally hit a button. It goes through a battery of tests and then ends up being deployed to production. That's the sweet spot, right? It's like deployments happen hundreds of times a day. Deployments become uh, become a non-issue, mm. and um, you know nobody really worries about it that much. It's just you just keep doing it. Yeah, it's 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 hard to describe. I think, and and I still feel I'm quite young in that whole um, experience or style. Even though you know I've been at it for a little while. But it's that that sense, if nothing else, maybe that that sense of reassurance that, well, if I've done, if I've done something silly, then my, then a test will sort of you know sort of scream at me saying, well, wait a second, well, you know, what's going on? And as it doesn't, I mean, there, I guess there can be a sense of false confidence, and I felt that perhaps either I was doing mocking the wrong way or my understanding of it was wrong, because that has I've gone down some, uh, I've gotten some false positives. In, in recent months with that. But that aside, I, the more I do it, and I guess the better my knowledge gets and the more I, I, I do it, I just feel more and more confident that, well, if the tests haven't exploded, then things should be fine. Yeah, that's no, that's, that, that's true. I mean, uh, you know, doing things the TDD way doesn't necessarily mean that every single bug is going to be found. I think my personal experiences have been TDD leads to code bases where you're where you're only dealing with really weird um, bugs, right? Mm-hmm. Really weird edge cases. And for me personally, I look at it in terms of it allows me to free up my brain to figure out how to solve these weird problems instead of really rote and repetitive um, mm-hmm. bug analysis and fixing. It's like all those really weird, obvious things. I should have found it by doing TDD and a very defensive programming stuff. And that all that's left are just really weird interactions that at the time when I was writing the tests, I didn't think about because it happens. We're still just people. We can't possibly cover every single scenario, every single way that, that, uh, 
you know, our application is going to be used, this module is going to be used. All we can do is try to, you know, I don't know, limit the damage that people can do mm-hmm. through building things in a specific way. Um, and that I have found that's a very big difference in what I do compared to a lot of people. I prefer a very defensive programming style. I prefer to to try to to try to trap potential errors and edge cases very, very early on um, in the process. Um, you know, lots of input filtering, lots of quick returns and early rejections of things that don't look correct with the goal being that, yeah, I'll only have like really weird things um, to worry about. Because if obvious things get through, then I've clearly failed in my job of anticipating even the most basic usage of of my code. Okay. Um more testing specific questions. I remember in your, was it the, the book, which isn't out yet, you talk about monkey patching. What yes. exactly is monkey patching? So, yeah, because it's actually very fortunate because today I, have, I need to spend some time working on that chapter for the book. So if you look at dependency injection and monkey patching can be kind of considered um, the opposite sides of the same coin. Whereas with dependency injection, usually done in, in testing terms, with test doubles. Um, instead with monkey patching, you're modifying things at runtime instead of substituting um, dependencies, which is what you know de- what test doubles are doing. For test doubles, you're like, okay, I have a dependency. I'm going to create a double of it. Uh, you know, I'm expecting it's going to get called with this method and return this value. With um, with monkey patching, you're like, I'm going to modify this thing at runtime. I'm going to say when it comes across. Uh, you know, there are some monkey patching tools that let you do things like overwrite what uh, PHP's time function returns for you. So rather than so rather than write code in such a way that you inject something that's a stand-in for time, hmm. you just monkey patch and say, I don't have to change my code. I'm just going to change how this particular method behaves for this particular run. Uh, monkey patching is extremely popular. Um, on the Ruby side of things, they're not such big believers in dependency injection, mm-hmm. and so so they tend to use monkey patching all over the place in their tests. Where you're you're substituting at runtime, you're saying, "I know this method is supposed to behave this way, but now it actually behaves this completely different way," and you define that at runtime. So um, I'm trying to think of a better way to describe that because the a, a better way of describing it just popped into my head, but it's gone now. It's just the idea of Monkey patching can be useful if you have a legacy code base that wasn't written, uh, that was written in such a way that refactoring things to allow you to set dependencies, um, you know, would be very, very difficult. Maybe it it would be hard for you to put like a a, a, a dependency ingestion container or a globally available location service mm. into your architecture, or you know, the amount of time that you'll need to go through and write um, and write setters and getters for things is um, out of you know, out of proportions to to the problem that you're trying to solve. It allows you to change things at runtime. Like the 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 basic examples I've even fooled around with this is this idea what I talked about. What if you have a method where you're where you need to get the latest time from the system, right? Mm-hmm. If we're not caring about testing, we'll just use an internal internal you know a core function of time if we're talking about PHP. Yeah. But what if you needed to write a test where you need to verify at a certain time a certain event is supposed to happen? How do you do that without Either setting the dis- dependency explicitly, or having a way to tell the to fool the system into thinking um, this time method, this time function that you're using, it's actually this thing over here. So that's kind of what monkey patching is. It, it it's I think 
There are times when it's very valuable for testing, but those cases are very, very narrow. And that's kind of what I'm talking about in the chapter. I'm showing some examples on when you can use monkey patching to solve a problem versus the time spent refactoring. Ultimately, in my opinion, you're far better off refactoring the code to allow you to um, explicitly set dependencies so you can use test doubles as required. But sometimes like you can't create, you can't create test doubles for internal PHP um, functionality. So you need some way to set those and monkey patching is one technique. Okay. So is that, is, so is monkey patching the same thing related to or, or different to uh, mutation testing? Uh, mutation testing is a little bit different. Mutation testing goes and randomly changes things inside your code. It'll look like a, it'll look like a conditional statement. And if the condition is like, if X is greater than Y, it'll at, at runtime, just flip it and say, okay, what happens if I change it to if X is less than Y? So the idea with mutation testing is that you have a really good test suite with a high level of coverage and lots of confidence that your application is is working the way that you expect it to. Mm. Then mutation testing goes and just randomly changes something and then looks to see if your test broke. And if your test didn't break, then you probably have a bug in there because your test should have caught that you've changed the condition from, like I said, from greater than to less than. That's what mutation testing is doing. Okay, because I was looking at Humbug um, Mm -hmm. and I did, I I hope I presented well, I think it was in the last uh, edition of PHP Architect. um, And I hope I did it like a a more than half decent introduction to it. But there were still bits about it. It was maybe just my newness to to the topic. I was still trying to, crystallize it further um i mean something that i'm, I'm really interested in but i think ah uh, is it drake brady hope i pronounced his name right there said that like the library itself was still kind of new so it, it did bring back some false positives mm-hmm. in amongst the like the good stuff um and while we're on that one do you know of like other uh mutation testing libraries or is humbug the, really the only one for php uh, Humbug is the only one I'm aware of for PHP. Other people may be working on them. I haven't heard of them. Um, okay. Humbug is the only one that I know of. Um, but it, I think it's a very interesting tool. And Patrick himself has said it's not something that you would run on your code base all the time. Mm. It's just like an occasional check. Maybe like before you do a big deployment or something, you just run through everything and see if Humbug finds anything kind of weird um, lurking beneath the surface. Because it's a very, I mean, at a high level, it, it's a very sound concept. A tool is going to go and change your source code and then make sure that your tests report a problem because they should be reporting a problem because you've changed an underlying assumption in the code. And if the test still passes, that probably means you have a bug in there just waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like the idea of it. It was just at first it was a bit maybe the the way I was used to thinking about things. This was sort of something from out the field, I guess, like doing what OOP and then doing like prologue or AI programming, just the you're in a certain mindset and it's hard to shift. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a it's a very different concept. I mean, if if you thought about it, it's like, so this thing's going to go and change my code and then run the tests and then tells me if, and if my tests don't fail, then I have a bug. You're right. It's a very weird concept to, to get your mind around, but mm-hmm. that's essentially um, what it's doing. Uh, to get back to the monkey patching thing, mm-hmm. the most common way that people are doing it is they use an extension for PHP called RunKit that lets you modify uh, things at a low level um, in real time. And so my chapter, I don't think I'm going to talk about RunKit because mainly because it's not available for PHP 7 yet, mm-hmm. but um, there are a few uh, 
packages from other folks that let, let you do the same type of thing where you basically set up some conditions and say, you know, uh, you can do a couple of different things. You can like, you can override specific functions or you can even uh, create your own stand-in. So you can almost create your own double for something. Mm -hmm. And then you tell it, okay, at runtime, for example, instead of using PDO, any calls to PDO, use this other object that I've created that kind of behaves like PDO, but isn't PDO. So in, in some ways it's, it's kind of like creating doubles, but you're not having to specifically inject them in. You just tell, you just, when you run your tests, it intercepts those calls and says, oh, you're trying to use PDO. Here, this thing is actually PDO now. So it's kind mm -hmm. of just at runtime doing a swap. I like it. I, I like the idea of that. I've got a, a project I've only just started working on at the moment, which I think I'm going to have a bit of an experiment with. Um, and there was one other, ah, there we go. Here we go. I could get sworn at. Um, so, Besides, what do you think about Codeception? Well, Codeception is just another testing tool. I don't. <laughs> I mean, it's it it's not so much unit testing, but yeah. it's like a combination of like we're we're doing some kind of integration, more functional testing, and we're wrapping. Uh, we're using um, uh, the language of BDD, uh, behavioral driven development, to help us define those tests. It's just another tool. I'm not a fan. I don't use it, but yeah. there are people that like it and. At this point, getting back to what we said way, way back at the beginning of our conversation, getting people actually testing is the goal. Um, I recommend a specific set of tools. But, you know, if you're more comfortable using these tools, there's no reason to not use them. It just, you know, my goal, my focus is on unit testing and the use of test doubles as stand-ins for dependencies. And that's, you know, if you believe in schools of testing, uh, the Chicago versus London, where the London school is the one that advocates uh, a whole bunch of test doubles. I'm definitely a London school of testing type person, but mm -hmm. I see people on Twitter saying, oh, you should never, ever, ever use test doubles. And I'm like, well, I think that's a very limiting, um, yeah. it's a very limiting opinion to have because uh, just think of all the work, uh, extra work that you're doing when you're limiting yourself to only using the real thing instead of a stand-in. You have issues of like a whole different idea where you have to maintain a whole different environment, a whole different um, database, data sources, uh, make sure your endpoints that you're using are constantly available. It just it's you're making trade-offs. My personal opinion is that the amount of work I have to do to create doubles is way less than if I had to constantly maintain a separate environment for my application to run in. Yeah, definitely. The only time I sort of, and I, I think it's like it's that ever-progressing uh, or ever-growing maturity in, in in my knowledge and. I was doing, I was I was doing mocks for like database calls, like for for a table gateway class, because I think I'd seen it done in the documentation and kind of uh, sort of just just talking went okay, I'll just run with that, because um, I think when I started doing it, I was quite new to the whole thing, and so some it perhaps I think recently in this case it was like a bad habit that sort of crept in, um, and then I found problems where like I'd I'd mocked what should happen. So I'd kind of effectively mocked too much. So of course it worked because I told it that's what it should do. Then I ran on the actual database and I got this error back saying there's no such column. And I guess my, my question in all that is, is there, how do you, when, when you're sort of like mock, mocking or adding dollars and stuff, you, you don't effectively set up a situation where it'll always tell you yes, you know. Well, of course that'll work because you've kind of in effect told it, um, here, give me the answer that basically I want you to give me. 
Yes. Yes, definitely. I mean, you've probably seen the idea of the testing pyramid, you know, when you're talking about the types of tests that you should be doing, where, you know, your bottom level of the pyramid is uh, unit tests with, with as high coverage as you can get. Then you still need another layer of integration tests. They're smaller, right? Mm. In terms of like, you don't need as many of them, but you know, that layer of the pyramid is just as important as the unit tests. Well, you know, and then after the integration test, then you have a much smaller spot at the top of the pyramid, which is probably a set of critical end-to-end tests where you've identified that these are all the things that absolutely need to work every time I, you know, absolutely need to work when I deploy this code to production. Yeah. So you can't have just the unit tests and you can't have just the integration tests and you can't have just a very narrow set of end-to-end tests. Because lost in there somewhere are all the, are the scenarios where, where you've you've made a bunch of assumptions about how this application is supposed to work, and all your tests are supposed to make sure that those assumptions are correct. And also, you know, the the unit tests are and integration tests are really about, you know, finding places where your assumptions were wrong. You know, finding places where oh, I you know. I always pass this parameter with this value in, and now all of a sudden this is no longer acceptable because of you know the data users have been putting into our system, or we changed something over here mm-hmm. and we didn't realize the impact it was going to have on a separate system. That's what all these tests are supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be finding out places where you've um, accidentally broken things, right? That's kind of for me. That's the high level of the testing is I want to make sure I haven't broken anything. Then the next one after that is when I need to go change something because. There's no such thing as an application that never changes. You're going to have to go back in and and add things, remove things, fix things. You know, new programming paradigms come out, new uh, approaches to solving specific problems come out. You know, you need to be able to go in and fix those things. And the test will give you the confidence that if I change it, I haven't accidentally broken it. That I have that the change uh, over way over here hasn't broken something uh, elsewhere in the application. So that the thing about the test as a pyramid is a very good way to look at it because you need all the parts of the pyramid. You can't just have the top. You can't just have the middle. You can't just have the bottom. All t- you need to have all these things together so that you work your way through all my unit tests pass. Great. Let's go into the integration tests. All the integration tests pass. Great. Let's go to our critical end-to-end tests. All the end-to-end tests pass. Great. We can deploy with the confidence that anything that we found is something that we didn't think of. And that's that's nothing wrong with that approach of deciding we found something that we didn't think of before instead of like, this is such a dumb bug and why did it get in here, right? Mm-hmm. Or or we fixed this problem six weeks ago. Why has it come back? I mean, those are those are the things you should that testing is supposed to help you prevent. And if they come back, then somewhere in that those multiple levels of the pyramid, you've you've messed up. Okay. Hmm. Well, I mean, that definitely helps because I think that aids in my thinking of at least I, I would catch myself out by if I have like all those bits in place. So at this point, is there something that you want to plug um, the upcoming uh, keynote at PHP South Coast? Um, anything in particular? Yeah. Um, yeah, just let me quickly go over what's happening with me between, I guess, between now and July, I guess is probably mm-hmm. a good way because that's because I'm kind of all booked up. So, yes, I have a, a, a new book coming out. Like I said, it's in beta slash early release. People can go find it up on LeanPub. If they look for minimum viable tests, they'll mm-hmm. find it. Um, all the other books and other content that I've done can be found at my website, grumpy-learning.com. Videos, books, links to that sort of stuff there. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm going to be doing the opening keynote at PHP South Coast, that's in um, the middle of June, um, in um, 
is it, it's in Portsmouth, I think. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, it's in Portsmouth. And then I'm just lucky that Mozilla is having an all-hands work week right after that. So I'll be going from Portsmouth to London for a week to hang out with my fellow Mozilla employees and, and work on stuff. So that would be very nice. Um, so then, but before that, in um, at the end of May, I'll be speaking, giving the same talk that I'm giving um, in Portsmouth at uh, PHP Serbia in Belgrade. I'm very excited to go. I've never been to that part of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. Uh in about two weeks, I will be in Australia at the PHP Australia conference, giving a, uh, I'm doing like a four or five hour testing workshop. And then I'm doing a talk about um, like a test smells. And I mean, covering a whole bunch of stuff probably that we've, th- that we've gone over here. Um, and then in July, I'll be speaking on the PHP cruise. So kind of my, my uh, professional career leading up to the middle of July is pretty much all booked up. <laughs> I am, I am so envious. Um, yeah, all right. Well, thank you very much for having a yarn with me. No problem. I'm glad. I was glad to be here. It was a good discussion. I like talking like this. And that wraps up the chat with the grumpy programmer himself. As it's gone on at quite a length today, I won't say much, just that I hope you got as much out of it as I did. For more information, you'll find all the show notes and all the other details at freethegeek.fm forward slash episode forward slash episode hyphen zero zero one six. And if you do have time, please consider leaving a rating on iTunes. It all really helps. And I'll see you again for episode 17.